Welcome to the Leading Deeply podcast. I'm Dr. Joe Albert, coach, consultant, and teacher interested in storytelling and helping people thrive. And I'm Dr. Beck Burson, a physician and psychiatrist fascinated by neurons and narratives and how people change. Thanks for joining us at Leading Deeply, a space to get curious how individuals and organizations address the undeniable desire we all have for meaning, purpose, and belonging. We want to know how leaders and those aspiring to lead can engage and animate these human needs to cultivate flourishing. Welcome to Leading Deeply. And today, we are really excited to have an internationally known author, thought leader, and leadership coach join us. Sally Helgeson is an acknowledged expert on the topic of women in leadership, and today we'll explore that notion of belonging. Beck, are you as excited as I am with our guest today? Yeah, I'm stoked. We've got an awesome woman to interview who is an ex- an expert in what we're going to be talking about as far as inclusion and belonging and uh, what women have to offer and how we can all learn from that. Um, just real quickly, if you are listening for the first time, welcome. It's always exciting to have new listeners and this a repeat uh, of you joining us. Thank you so much for coming back. As you probably know, we are focusing on belonging. So meaning, purpose, belonging, and how that relates to both the individual and the organization is what our focus is on here at Leading Deeply. And today we're going to be looking at belonging and the underpinnings of safety, which are so essential for growth. So Joe, if you could tell us about Sally Helgeson, who is joining us today, that would be fantastic. This is fun to read, actually. I'm not going <laughs> to skip over parts of it because I enjoy doing this so much. Um, Sally Helgeson, uh, Saiden Forbes as the world's premier expert in women's leadership, internationally known, best-selling author, speaker, leadership coach. She's been inducted into the Thinkers 50 Hall of Fame, which I had not heard of, honestly, so I had to check it out which honors those whose ideas have shaped the field of leadership worldwide. She is ranked number three among the world's thought leaders by global gurus. Her latest book, Rising Together, How We Can Bridge Divide and Create a More Inclusive Workplace, offers a lot of practical ways to build more inclusive relationships at work. Rising Together builds on Sally's remarkable success with how women rise and examines the behaviors most likely to get in the way of successful women. Other books include The Female Advantage, Women Ways of Leadership, The Web of Inclusion, um, just there's a bunch of others and I'll refer to those as we get into our conversation. And she's done this for over 30, 30 years now and has done seminars, workshop, keynotes around the world. So. Um, and since 1990, when The Female Advantage was published, she's consistently identified key issues and opportunities for women and men to improve the work, workplace leadership that truly engages, supports, and creates internet organizational cultures that allow people to flourish. And I'll never forget this. This is my copy. I'm looking at it, The Web of Inclusion. I asked Sally to uh, sign it. Um, and she said, you know, it's so great to meet you and have you uh, in my web of inclusion. All the best, Sally Hogason. I've showed this to people. And she lives it. And that's the thing about Sally. She lives what she writes about. And and it really is an honor for, for me personally, and I know for Becca as well, to uh, welcome Sally to uh, Leading Deeply. So, Sal, thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. It's wonderful to be here with you. Great. So as you know, there's a narrative quality to our to our podcast and storytelling is a part of this. I've never asked you this before, but as you think about your career and what you've done, what what brought you to this work? What's your story about that? You know, the story, the motivation for this work was very, very personal. In the mid 1980s, I was working in corporate communications in a number of very good companies. But what I noticed was that they had absolutely no clue as to how to use the real talents, especially the more strategic talents of the women that they had. There were not that many women. Uh, The ones that there were were mostly doing very set tasks. And I felt really at that time that I 
often heard some of the best ideas about what the company could be doing, about what the various companies could be doing in the ladies' lounge, which was a thing back in the 80s. So I decided that companies needed to understand this better and that in order to do that, I would see if I could get support from a publisher to um, to learn about how some of the America's most successful women led. I would have liked to do it globally, but I knew there wasn't a budget. So I was able to secure a book contract for that. And I uh, did diary studies of four women leaders who were remarkable and extremely diverse at that time. And uh, that book became The Female Advantage, Women's Ways of Leadership. Hmm. And as a result of that book, it was it was the first book that looked what, at what women could contribute rather than how they could change and adapt. It was published in 1990. Everything in the 80s had been about, you know, you're in the army now. If it moves, salute it. Leave your values at home. You're not going to change things. So I felt that was bad advice. So because the book was a, the first of its kind, I started getting invitations right off the bat. Come speak here. Come talk to our women, etc. So I thought, well, I'd rather do this than you know write speeches for executives. So uh, so I decided to to see if I could make it work and. Uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, almost 35 years have passed, and uh, it's just been remarkably rewarding. And I've continued to identify other aspects of women's leadership and inclusive leadership throughout yeah. that career. That's been amazing. And one of the things I remember, Mintzberg had come out with the Nature of Managerial Work, which was really a profile like guys, basically, you know, and, and what they did kind of. And you did much more of a narrative approach. I mean, that, that was kind of, you told the stories of these women and stuff. How did you sell this to a publisher? What was your argument? My argument was essentially that it was time somebody looked at what women had to contribute. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't have the idea that I was going to do it narratively. Uh, my editor suggested I take a look at Henry Mintzberg's book. I did, and I thought, well, it's very quantitative, and I don't have any quantitative background or skills at all. So I thought, I'll just do it like I'm writing short stories that are based on my interview. I've been a journalist, so that's how I approached it. Um, What was a big moment in my early career was one night when I was sitting at home, and I always thought, you know, I'd sent Henry Mintzberg a book, and, you know, I, I never thought he'd read it or anything. I got no response. And um, about a year later, I the phone rang at home and it said, Sally, this is Henry Mintzberg. And I thought, uh-oh, he's going to read me the riot act. And he said, I just want to tell you how much your book has influenced uh, my writing. And I've started to do less quantitative, uh, more qualitative. And I'm, I'm starting to profile nurses because I think that your intuition that women's leadership is going to be the key to great leadership going forward is exactly right. So that's the kind of encouragement that I started getting right away. You know, I mean, that that took a little bit, but I got this, this encouragement. And that's what enabled me to leave, you know, some very good, <laughs> some very good positions I had, you know, and just see, see what I could see if I could make this work on my own. That's remarkable. And one of the, the threads that I've, and, and that touches on today's topic of belonging is about inclusion. That all the, every book I was rereading, Thriving in 24-7, and of course, Web of Inclusion, The Female Advantage, all those. And there's always that thread of inclusion. As, as you know, you heard our, our request for you to join us today around belonging. What connection did you make in terms of inclusion and belonging? Well, I think inclusion is the is how organizations are led. Organizations are led inclusively or not, mm-hmm. but that's the organizational piece. Belonging has to do with the feeling a person has that they're being included. Mm-hmm. So that's the I think of belonging as the individual response to an inclusive culture, whereas alienation, resentment. I'll never get a break. 
uh, I need to find a different job, whatever. All those are responses in general to cultures that are led, um, you know, not led inclusively. And there are a lot of them, but there are also increasing numbers of inclusive cultures. So that's how I would distinguish those two. That's really clear. That's really helpful. Thank you. And, and that I think in your books, there's always a practical quality to them. Like this is something you can do to increase it, say inclusivity, whatever. And belonging, you're absolutely right. I think people people yearn to be seen and be heard, you know, and, and like their story and so forth and so on. So I think that's absolutely consistent with what you always write about. So Beck, what are you thinking? Yeah, I was thinking something I read the other day, like something along the lines of diversity is having a seat at the table, inclusion is having a voice at the table, and belonging is being heard, you know, and just the distinction between being able to be there versus actually being heard. And, you know, when I think about all of the highlights you have um, given attention to as far as what women bring to the table and, and their leadership style, and just thinking of those as feminine attributes that men can also um, take hold of. I also think about women with their ability to nurture relationship and nurture relationship through story. And I would love to just hear your thoughts either anecdotally or conceptually as far as the role of belonging and helping people to actually have their voice be heard. And what do maybe women have to offer, but what can we all bring to the table as far as um, allowing people's voice to be heard? Well, I love that you included this. So we're talking about belonging. We're also talking about this nurturing relationships. And it was fascinating to me because one of the things I saw in the women that I did the diary studies of for uh, the female advantage was that they were all superb at building strong relationships in very, very, very different ways. And I talked about that in the book as, you know, one of the skills that women at their best bring to leadership. It's not that men don't, there aren't men who bring it. It was that it wasn't necessarily valued in organizations in the 70s and 80s. Other things were valued. So I talked about that as one of the leadership skills women had to offer. So when the book was published, this was the point I got the most pushback on. I got it over and over. You know, uh, building relationships is not a leadership skill. It's a soft skill. And you don't, so it would either be, you know, so that's what women have, but that's not a leadership skill. Therefore, women aren't really leaders. Or it would be the other perspective. So I think you've done a disservice uh, to women by talking about a soft skill as something uh, that they have as a leadership skill because it's not a leadership skill. So this was the mindset that we went into the 1990s with. Uh, very widespread soft skill relationship. It, that has been blown out of the water. Obviously now, whether it's lip service or it's real, uh, this is one of the things that is considered very much a leadership skill. So that that really changed. So that capacity for building relationships, but it's not just that, is the capacity for building relationships broadly, not just building relationships with people higher than you or on a good day with colleagues and peers, but also building strong relationships with people at every level. And when you do that, that is key to creating a culture of belonging because it's the people who aren't at the, at the most senior levels who are obviously more, most likely to feel as if they don't really belong because they don't feel seen, they don't feel heard, they don't feel listened to, they don't have a voice. Uh, but it's also, and this is an important point because it connects diversity and inclusion it's very important for people who come from what was, you know, from outside what had been the leadership mainstream 
they have had a struggle often to be heard. And when they speak up, they often get the pushback, you know, well, you're aggressive, you're taking up a lot of air in the room, you know, that sort of that sort of thing, which is, um, you know, sort of unsafe place to be. So that's really why, you know, it's interesting because when I started writing about inclusion with the Web of Inclusion in 1995, there was no such thing as diversity and inclusion. And as Joe can attest, being a fan of the Web of Inclusion, there's no reference to this in terms of diversity at all. But within two or three years, we'd gotten this pairing of diversity and inclusion, diversity and inclusion, DNI, now expanded DEI, whatever. But it I was at first surprised. It certainly led to a lot of work for me, but um, but I saw what a good connection it was because it, an inclusive culture must be one in which diverse individuals, individuals who would have been outside the, the leadership mainstream or still are, feel as if they're recognized and valued and seen, this is important, not just for their contributions, but also for their potential. That's really beautiful. And you mentioned the word unsafe and you mentioned the word create. Create an environment, you know, create belonging. And trying to push further this idea of safety, inclusion, belonging, creativity. And I know that there's definitely themes that connect those. Um, and I don't know if I need to be more pointed than that, but this idea of how you said back in the 90s, it was thought relationships don't have that much value as far as leadership. But we know for sure, I think it was McGrath in the 90s, who looked at the success of an organization depends on the capacity to learn from experiences. You know, this ability to look at mistakes and courageously come up with a way forward. That's a creative process, yes. right? And, and bringing people to the table to partake in leveraging diverse points of view is a creative process. I'm, I'm curious if that strikes a chord with you at all, just this theme of creativity and belonging, relationship, inclusion. A very strong chord with me. I think one of the reasons that organizations were so quick and passionate to very rightly pick up on Amy Edmondson's work with her on psychological safety, which has been brilliant, and she's my colleague in Thinkers 50, um, is that organizations have come to recognize the importance of creativity, not just, I mean, just to keep going, because in this environment, you need to innovate constantly in order to just keep up. You know, ideas are where there's value. That's the value differential rather than machines or, you know, uh, substances, you know, look at, you know, computers, a perfect example. It's not the plastic and the sand. No, it's the ideas that people bring. So organizations know that that they are dependent upon human creativity in order to, um, to remain competitive in the marketplace. And I think one thing Amy shows so well is that creativity depends upon safety because otherwise you don't have that freedom and that ability to innovate. I think that that safety requires an inclusive culture. And I think we've been to some degree, and this is what I write about in, in my new book, Rising Together, we've a little bit been, not. I'm not going to say led astray, but we've reached a little bit of a dead end because inclusion has been judged on you know, unconscious bias. It's become in so many organizations. Yeah, we have a new inclusion uh, initiative. And so we have, we're rolling out, you know, unconscious bias training for our top 500 worldwide, whatever it is. I hear that. I still hear this all the time. And it only goes so far because people do not respond to us based upon, um, you know, the ideas running through our heads. They respond to us based on our behaviors. 
So creating a safe environment, creating an environment in which people experience belonging, feel seen and heard, creating an environment in which people have the, the freedom to be able to try out creative ideas without being terrified that they're going to lose their job, that really is dependent upon, the, in my view, the degree to which leaders at the top level, but also at the level that they're interacting with people, can demonstrate inclusive behaviors. And that's what's gotten overlooked in the, the efforts of the last 10 years, is being really, and Joe's exactly right, I always try to be as practical as I can, not theoretical, because uh, I deal with real people and all this. Um, you know, what do inclusive behaviors look like? Why are they perceived that way? You know, what, you know, I, I, I see, you know, every day on Substack, people you want to be a leader, listen. Well, what does listening look like? You know, how does it appear to someone else when someone's listening? So try to break it down. And I think that it's a really important point. And this is one of the areas that I think uh, we can make some progress on in the next few years is focus on inclusive behaviors to create the kind of organization, the kind of culture you're talking about. That's really helpful. And, and Joe, I want to hear your thoughts too, but just to take what Sally's saying and, and weave it a little bit. We think about creativity and innovation when it comes to the organization and having products to offer, solutions to offer. But looking intrapersonally, it is such a creative act to take responsibility for our own belonging. At Horizon Credit Union, community is who we serve, and helping you grow is our goal. Your path is our purpose, and together we can make a positive impact. Whether you're ready for a checking account, a home loan, or a team that cares about your dreams, doing business here does good in the community. Discover the difference and open your account today or find a branch near you at hzcu.org. Horizon Credit Union is an equal housing opportunity lender insured by NCUA. You referenced Amy Edmondson, but just so we're all on the same page with the listeners, you know, Amy Edmondson, Harvard Business School, created this belief of psychological safety that we shouldn't be punished or humiliated for speaking up with ideas or concerns or questions. And so intrapersonally, we have to put on that same creative hat to think okay, when I'm triggered, how do I creatively respond? How do I respond in a different way than I normally would that's off the tracks of my neuroplasticity um, rails? And um, just thinking about, you know, yes, belonging is a byproduct of inclusiveness that an organization can offer, but what do the individuals have a responsibility to do as far as how they respond and cultivate belonging. Um, Joe, Sally, I, I'd be curious your thoughts on that. I'm glad to to weigh in. I I love this question. I've never really been asked it before. Uh, individuals have a serious responsibility in in terms of this. We can't just wait around for the organization. Um, we have to, and I think this is one of the reasons that the emphasis on unconscious bias training has often had a negative knock-on effects that were not intended at all. Um, it can make people feel unsafe in terms of building relationships. So it feel as if they have to have perfect thoughts before uh, they can reach out to people. But I think it's also made people, what I find in terms of addressing cultures where you have a dividedness or you know, you have people judging one another or people feeling that they're in or out. One of the most helpful things that we can do and take responsibility for as individuals, no matter what level we're at, is really making a persistent effort to give other people the benefit of our goodwill. This is not necessarily being done in organizations today not to mention our communities, political environment, et cetera, that, that has you know, other factors that are driving it. But in terms of, of organizations, it's really, really important to be able to give others the benefit of our goodwill. You know, I, I, in Rising Together, I have a 
an example, and this was real, and this was real life of a fellow who owned a, a, a literary and other agency uh, in New York. He was in his mid seventies, great guy, promoted women for decades, you know, 50 plus year marriage, et cetera. And he was getting into the elevator and he saw this young woman who'd had her hair down to here. And she suddenly had a short haircut and he said, oh, great haircut. And that afternoon, a committee came to see him and said, we know you're a good guy. So before we go, before we go to HR and report you, we need to be very clear that you made a completely inappropriate comment in the elevator this morning. It was like, what? What did I say? And you know, it was like, well, you and he he said, you know, really, it was just I noticed the haircut so much. And he said, well, you wouldn't have noticed it if it were a man. He said, well, actually, if somebody had hair down to here and they got their hair cut short and it was a man, I would have noticed. They would not give him. They were so dug in to their point of view. They would not give him the benefit of our good of their goodwill. And I think that's something we can all take responsibility for doing. Uh, if somebody says something and it triggers us in some way, and this the, this young woman was obviously quite triggered by this, we always need to think, you know, what else could they have meant? What may have motivated that? And test out what, test out other ideas about what their response means. I think we've we've come to overread things a lot. I, I really do. And it's it's certainly not just from that perspective. It's, you know, guys who say, well, yeah, I guess you can't take a joke, all this kind of stuff. Maybe there's another narrative. Maybe the problem isn't that she can't take a joke. Maybe there's something else. Give other people the benefit of our goodwill. And I, I, I really think that we we have the capacity to rewrite scripts. And, and this goes to your, you know, your idea about neuroplasticity and its role here. Uh, it, we can rewrite scripts for incidents that disturb us that are minor. I'm not talking about sexual harassment, et cetera, or, you know, blatantly, you know, openly, clearly racist or sexist comments. Um, but we can rewrite those scripts. And, and in doing so, it gives us a path to building relationships with people that we may have felt that we should be at odds with. I like that. That's helpful. And I, this is where I, I feel like I benefited from a Jesuit education where, you know, they talk about always assume the best of intentions unless you know otherwise kind of thing, you know, and that makes perfect sense. And I'm, I'm hanging on the creativity thing too. I'm, I think because I'm, I'm just started reading Rick Rubin's book, The Creative Act, and um, it's pretty good, actually. Um, that space, and I, th I think I try to do that as a as a teacher, where you hold create a holding space for students, where, where they can be expressive, where they can find their own voice, and and that's that's not easy to do. And when I've done coaching with with people that struggle with this, boy, it's a hard thing to teach. And, and that's what I liked about your all your writing. Actually, is like here are some things you can do um that that allow that space at least to emerge to an extent uh where people feel safe enough to to be creative to be expressive because creativity takes a lot of vulnerability i mean there, it's risky business you know for people i think to to explore that like I'm, I'm teaching storytelling in a few weeks to grad students you know and and some of them are so nervous about sharing their story you know and like you really have to encourage, you have to model, you have to do everything, vulnerability on the part of the, you know, the person that's leading or facilitating, you know, that kind of thing. And that's what I wondered is, is how do you coach people that really feel, oh crap, I can never do that. You know, that maybe they lack empathy or they, whatever it might be. But, uh, but I think your books get at that certainly, but I, have you run into that salary? It's just, you, some people really struggle with, I believe I agree with you, but how do I do this? But how do I do this? Or, you know, I I can't, I mean, a, a lot of it is going to be perfectionism or feeling like I've got to hit it out of the park the first time. And, and so I think it's just practice, 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 practice. That's mm -hmm. how you do it. You're not going to feel comfortable with being vulnerable 
to begin with. It's not going to happen. You will become so as you practice, as you practice new behaviors, you'll get more fluid at them. But if you're waiting to do it exactly right the first time, when you get enough practice to be able, you're not going to get enough practice to make that happen. It's just not going to happen. So practice in a low stakes way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the reasons I think peer coaching can be so useful. You have somebody, you know, oh, I'm going to try to say this to, I, I, I've figured out what I want to say in this situation to so-and-so. I feel very intimidated. Um, would you listen while I, you know, say it, do it a couple times with you? So get in practice in, in advance in a low stakes situation. Then try it out and and recognize, say, you know, I this is the kind of thing I'm I'm not particularly comfortable saying. So it may not come out exactly as I intended to right now, but X. And this is not something offensive, but just something where you feel vulnerability. Uh, of course, we don't speak offensively. But uh, I think that that's, that's what I try to convey is you won't get this through thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And that it's easier, as I say in, in Rising Together, it is, it's not only easier, but it's more success. Act our way into new ways of thinking, not to think our way into new ways of acting. So we need to start acting in ways that, you know, will help us reach whatever that goal is in communication or relationship building. That's really helpful. And one of the things I'll talk to a lot about with my students is the intention versus impact. You know, I mean, just to be honest and forthright about your intention and realize the impact doesn't always align with exactly. with your intention, you know, and that conversation, I think, can be really helpful for people. So and it's very consistent with, you know, we know in the literature as far as CBT, our actions change first and our thoughts change second and last to come to the scene is our emotions. You know, if we're waiting to feel a certain way, it's pointless. And so um, creatively being able to act in ways that is courageously putting things together that aren't normally put together, putting a story together that maybe is a less trodden path, um, both internally with the thoughts we tell ourselves and externally with the thoughts we tell ourselves about other people. And um, I think there was a, a quote you had said, it's the stories that we tell ourselves when we feel triggered that keep us dug in and limit our ability to frame an effective response. It's like, yeah, we're addicted to these narratives that keep us stuck and it's creativity and safety that allows that creativity to carve new successful paths forward. Yeah, exactly. What if I what if I considered this thought and then what if I acted on that? And that's why I think, you know, people often need a little push. I'm thinking of when I, I was during the recession, I was helping people ghost a couple books. And one guy was writing a book about leadership and driving. And he insisted that I go to Skip Barber, which is a uh, a race car driving school, you know, for, for a couple days. I mean, I cannot tell you how much I didn't want to do this. And I kept, you know, I was going on and on. And Bart and my, my husband, Bart, and my brother kept saying, you are complaining about the opportunity to have three days free at Skip Barber. What are you, out of your mind? But I was terrified because I felt that they may, might make me drive 120 miles an hour. I don't like speed. I don't like heights. And uh, in, in fact, the guy did. He, the second day, he made me drive 130 miles an hour and go into a turn. What had happened is, number one, I had I had been with him in the car, so I'd come to trust him. Sitting in a classroom and telling me, and then we're going to do this, and the speed is actually here, and the differential wouldn't have worked. I trusted him because I'd been in a car with him enough. Uh, and then that feeling when I, and he pushed me, he said, you're, you're not going to get out of this. We're, we're going to stay here. We'll be doing it in the dark if you, do, if you don't, you know, if you keep putting it off. Okay, I'll get it over with. And then that feeling of creative release, once I had done it, and it was just, it was remarkable. And I bring that up because it's, it was so outside my comfort zone. <laughs> and 
because it, you know, it showed the importance of that feeling of safety. And that was the trust that I felt in him as a driver and a drive driving instructor, because I'd been in that situation with him. That's awesome. And, and such a good illustration that safety does not equal comfort. And in our society, <laughs> we've really equated comfort and safety. And yeah. I think that's led us astray. Um, Joe, what are you thinking? Well, I was going to just the Paul Tillich thing on, you know, going from the known to the unknown and that sense of liminality mm. where you're on the threshold and how that creates so much anxiety for people and trying to create a space where you can hold that with them and is really a gift, I think. But um, before I run out of time, one question I had, it's, I was going to get down the road around loneliness as a national. I, I went back and reread parts of Bowling Alone and that sense of we, we don't belong to things anymore. And there's a real sense of yearning, I think, for connection. But I'm, I'm curious also a little bit, I guess, you know, when you look at the desire, a lot of people have to work remotely now. Um, does that impact the sense of inclusion? And in, in, I've been trying to wrap my mind around a good question to ask you, trying to put these pieces together, but there's a sense of a lot of people would rather work from home. Does that in any way inhibit the growth of that sense of inclusivity and belongingness? Yes, I do. I do believe that it does. I think it makes it harder to create inclusive cultures. It makes it harder for people to feel seen and recognized for people who already have a strong place carved out, who already know a lot of people that's manageable for people who don't. That's very, very, very challenging to feel like part of anything when you, you know, you're staring at the little green dot. And so that's, that's very tough. I think this is a particular problem in the U.S. in the way that Bowling Alone identified it for a, a couple of reasons. First of all, just our lack of a social safety net makes it very difficult for people who are starting out or in, you know, in the first 20 years of their career uh, to be able to afford to live near where they work. That's really tough. If you live in San Jose, you know, you're going to have this terrifying commute, not to mention, you know, San Francisco or or uh, L.A. or many, many Seattle. You know, my my nephew's there now. They live way, way out. And so that's you know, we've got a real financial issue here around that. And then, of course, also the lack of support, child care, et cetera. So that 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 really drives people to to make a decision that I can't afford to have a job where I have to come in. And I don't think, you know, worker dorms provided by Amazon are going to be an answer to that in terms of creating community, not at all. So it's not an organic kind of community. The other thing is very anecdotal, but once the pandemic had, we thought, <laughs> died down to some extent, um, you know, and I started going into New York City and traveling to Chicago and D.C. and places like that. One of the things that struck me was how alienating it was to see the retail had dried up and it wasn't coming back. And I go to New York now, retail, you know, just died during the pandemic to some extent. I mean, there's still some big stores, but it's nothing like it was. And the vibrancy of a community with people out and they're buying this and they're running into people and, you know, they're stopping for whatever, you know, a meal is, is just missing in so many of our cities now is everybody's just, you know, ordering everything online and doing DoorDash or whatever, whatever app they're using for food. It is remarkable. And I thought, well, this is what the world is going to be used to. We went to, we were in Barcelona for a month last year, the opposite. It was absolutely everybody was out all the stores were open people i mean it was just a different different orientation and that loneliness that in bowling alone i'm forgetting the author's name that he identified as such a core part of our you know in this country of how we function i think has led us to this 
being online for work, for food, for ordering what are basic necessities. And it's a it becomes a a spiral. You know, Walgreens doesn't have anything on the shelves because everybody's ordering it online. So then you order it online because if you go to Walgreens, they're not going to have what you want. Whereas, you know, if you go to you're in Barcelona or Paris, there are a lot of those little pharmacies left. So it's just a very I think it's a very alienating environment and that it's certainly playing out in the divisiveness we see. And I'm not talking big picture politics, but, you know, school board stuff and all, all this, this divisiveness is this this feeling of 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 aloneness that people have. You just you made me think, Sally, and I, I really appreciate that. But I was thinking about your example of Barcelona and how it wasn't the case that everything had dried up. And how we have, you know, economic capital that we invest and reinvest and share and take and earn. And then there's social capital. And with your work on web of inclusion and how we draw from webs, not this hierarchical structure, I think it beautifully illustrates how we need to be socially using our capital in these systems to keep them going, right? Like if I tip the barista, there's a a sense of you know kindness or a sense of accountability and the next time I come in there's another social repercussion you know these systems are in a web and when we're not participating in them because of the nature of our work if it is completely online we're not we're not participating in the economy uh, the, the social economics where belonging can thrive that's right we're outside of any kind of um first of all, any kind of economy of generosity or gift. Uh, but we're also, you know, in a very limited sphere. I mean, what you see, I mean, what, what I saw in Barcelona was, you know, it's, it's or even in small towns there. I, I live in a small town and, you know, it's like a bomb had dropped. But in when you go into the village center often, but there you would see, you know, old people and people with canes and people with walkers and people with dogs and young couples and kids. And, you know, it's very mixed up. And we have sort of lost that capacity to some extent here. Older people live here. Young people live here. You know, families live there. You know, it's all it's very kind of corporatized and makes it sort of easy, I guess, to negotiate. But you don't you don't. I think that, and and this is why I, I love you using the word hierarchical in there, because this is part of it. You know, we're getting so that we're interacting with more and more narrow slices of people, um, no matter where we are. And that whole concept of sort of neighbors and neighborhoods has has eroded under this pressure. So, yes, we're not developing the kind of social capital. And this is why, you know, I bring up something like retail, which sounds strictly commercial, but it's it's very much a part of what always tradi traditionally has made cities lively. And that's that's pretty much evaporated in this country. And it's, you know, except in a few, again, malls that are very segregated and, you know, where you're not having a true mix of people. So we have less and less of that. You know, the mega churches, less and less, uh, you know, they they have, uh, you know, groups for divorced dads and, you know, Sunday morning programs for uh, priests. It's just all segmented. It's it's, it's very segmented. And yeah, it's tough. So just pitch real quick, Rising Together. Yeah, Rising Together is really about the habits and behaviors that help us, you know, bridge divides with people we may perceive as different from ourselves who may have for that reason either intimidated us or we don't feel comfortable or they would feel we're, you know, they might perceive us in X, Y or Z way. So it's about what those behaviors are. And then as Beck had pointed out, it's also about what gets in our way. What gets in our way are triggers. You know, it's not fair. This this group of people is always privileged. Um, you know, I don't like how that group of people communicate. So I don't want to get involved with them. You know, that person's a showboat because they always get noticed. 
I'm not willing to be the kind of person who's a showboat, so I don't get noticed. That makes me a better person. Whatever those narratives that we tell ourselves are, you know, they're the re response from triggers. And as I said, uh, as Beth iterated, it, it, it's really not the triggers, it's the narratives that we develop in response to the feelings that that we're triggered by. And how do we deal with these? Because I think these two recognitions that triggers are an issue, that behaviors are the solution, are what is going to lead us out of a sort of, um, you know, a stall out in a lot of DNI work that's being done with many good intentions in organizations all around the world. Because I, my work is very global and it's the same. Yeah. Wow. You know, it is just this is such a treat. I, I'm sort of inclined to ask you what's next, but we'll just have to wait and see because I'm excited to see and hope <laughs> you'll continue to produce this generative kind of work that you do that that really does build i think inclusive cultures and and give people the tools to do that in uh you know whatever setting they find themselves in and whatever country they're in and this has just been an absolute treat for us so uh deep deep appreciation thank you and uh i appreciate your your accessibility and uh and just your work in general and i recommend to listeners anything by sally i i go back to the female advantage and just forward and it's always rich and it's consistent it's consistent and the threads you've maintained over the years so thank you so much for doing this i i really appreciate that and and beck your questions are just fantastic really really provocative and it's a treat to meet you as well uh so thank you thank you so much to both of you Thank you so much and take good care of yourself and we'll look forward to reading more of your work. What a fantastic dialogue with Sally Helgeson. Um, what are you taking with you, Joe, as far as belonging, as far as this conversation? Um, she, I, she does live what she preaches around belonging and inclusivity. It's always fun. And, but I, what I really liked was the, the practical application of that. You know, especially, if, I hate to say it this way, but for guys that maybe struggle with what they understand leadership to be and how she approaches it, it's a very different kind of understanding of leadership. And, and the fact that she's given people the skills to do that is really profoundly helpful, I think. Um, it really is. And so um, just the, the broadness of her understanding, and I've never quite heard her whole story you know leading up to you know what led her to to, to do the work she's done so that was really a, a treat i think just to get some of the narrative background on her because she tends to you know treat as as it excludes her own story in that you know and, and that makes sense to me but it was she's just articulate bright practical and inclusive i mean that's how she is so what about you what was your biggest takeaway the idea that relationship building is a leadership skill. I mean, that is something we know now, but even in the work I do as a psychiatrist with an interest, you know, through the organizational leadership paradigm of wanting to do coaching and consulting as well, I realize me just helping people with relationships and me being in relationship with people is leading. Mm -hmm. It's not in an organization. It's not, in a formal leadership role, but it is a type of leadership and how important cultivating that safety and that environment to grow is, mm. um, both in a family, both as a, a physician or, or working with organizations. Um, and th that idea that we have to participate in the social emotional economy, mm. right? There has to be this exchange of funds back and forth between trust and expectation and hope and this economy that connects us all so that we don't see ourselves as single dots but um kind of like our conversation with dr lisa miller is this unitive togetherness and i think that's when we can foster the safety that comes out of diversity and inclusion to then lead to creativity which is really what we need to change the both internally 
with what we tell ourselves and externally what we tell ourselves about other people um and and how that is essentially the the path forward for belonging i believe i really liked your question about sort of personal responsibility on this sort of journey you know and i think it was really helpful that was a real good sort of point to make i guess you know owning it you know in a way obviously it, it's got to be reciprocated and so forth but the sense of what creatively how do i begin to create contribute to creating a safe space i think that's yeah. well it's definitely something I, I wrestle with you know how much of this is the organization's responsibility versus the individual and of course it's both but trying to practically figure out a way forward on both ends is essential listeners uh our upcoming uh podcast i think i we haven't nailed down a date yet but uh father greg boyle is a uh, uh jesuit priest that runs started a thing called homeboy industries in los angeles and and uh, uh i think that'll be a real fascinating conversation as well he's internationally known again as a writer and speaker and so forth but um and Beck, can you touch on the topic real quick as well that how we landed on Greg. I mean, yeah, 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 sure. So we're going to continue here at Leading Deeply looking at our core themes of meaning, belonging, and purpose. And last show, we looked at meaning and transcendence. Today, we looked at belonging and that undergirding of safety. And with Father Boyle, we're going to be looking at purpose and the role of agency in the work that he does. That'll be good. I'm excited. If you have liked this content, you want to engage at a deeper level, please go to leading-deeply.com. Again, that's www.leading-deeply.com. And subscribe to get our newsletter. It will bring you into a conversation that will continue these themes of meaning, purpose, and belonging. All right. Well, listeners, thank you so much for, for joining us and hope you have found this as fun and as valuable as we did. Uh, Cause I, I think it has been, it's just been an absolute treat. So thank you. And we will look forward to uh, having you join us on our next segment. So take care. And as we launch into a new year, Wishing you well and uh, have a good year. So thank you.